When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You're listening to Campus Killings, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Today we'll be going to Gallaudet University to cover two student murders that happened within months of each other, which left the community asking, did someone from the outside break into this campus, or was the killer one of their own? As we always do, today, Amy, we're going to start with a little background on the school to orient ourselves. Gallaudet University was co-founded by three men looking to open an educational facility for deaf students in 1816. They traveled to Europe the year prior to observe how educators were teaching deaf children and brought that knowledge back to the United States. So in 1817, they founded the American School for the Deaf, which was renamed in honor of one of the men, Thomas Gallaudet. That was in 1894. Thomas Gallaudet is really fascinating. If our listeners want to read up more about him, he pioneered education for deaf persons in a time when most deaf children were ostracized or thought to be unteachable. Mm. And while his school started as simply a place for parents to send their deaf children to give them a fighting chance in society, Gallaudet has become a leading educational institution in visual learning visual language, social justice, and equal rights for deaf and hard-of-hearing individuals. Gallaudet is an Ivy League university and is considered by many to be the deaf version of Harvard. So getting into this school is a huge privilege um, and very difficult. They only accept 2,000 students total into the programs. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, as a note, while Gallaudet is an elite school, it's located in a fairly crime-ridden part of Washington, D.C. And since we always talk on this show about how murders tend to change security on college campuses, 
I want to make it clear from the beginning that Gallaudet had a history of excellent security, even before the events we'll be discussing today. Um, In fact, of the six entrances into campus, only one was left open after 6 p.m., which made screening people coming onto the campus very easy. They also had exceptional security of the dorms with key card swipe systems. And while we've discussed that students can always let non-students into the dorms, despite this level of precaution, at Gallaudet, you'd still have to know someone with a key card for a specific building to gain access. So it was not easy, Amy, for strangers to enter buildings on this campus. But despite all of these safety measures, the school would be absolutely rocked by not one, but two brutal murders. On September 28, 2000, just a few weeks after the beginning of the fall semester, students in the freshman dorm of Cogswell Hall noticed that one young man's door was remaining stubbornly closed. As all of the students at the school are deaf, most of them preferred to leave their dormitory doors open during the day to be able to see who was walking past. And this particular student, 18-year-old Eric Plunkett, particularly enjoyed leaving his door open to invite students to come in and chat. He was, you know, that guy, the, the chatty one in the dorms. Eric had just started at Gallaudet, and being accepted was one of the greatest achievements of his young life. Despite being born deaf and having cerebral palsy, Eric was determined to make his way in the world. After being salutorian of his high school, Eric was beyond ecstatic to get into Gallaudet. And obviously, his family could not have been prouder of their son for this huge accomplishment. Eric's friends and families described him as a gregarious and friendly young man from Minnesota. He'd met several other students' orientation, who he'd instantly become fast friends with. So there was fellow freshman, um, 18-year-old Thomas Minch of Greenland, New Hampshire, and 18-year-old Benjamin Varner from San Antonio, California. And there was an upperclassman, Joseph Mesa, who was an 18-year-old from Guam. Sorry, these are his friends that you're talking about? Like his these crew? were, uh, yeah, this was kind of his crew that he met at orientation. You know how you make a, I don't know about you, but you make friends at orientation and they put, they become yep. kind of your crew in the beginning? Mm-hmm. Well, apparently this was a crew because they all lived together in the same dorm of Cogswell Hall and they frequently met up to hang out or study together. But on the night of September 28th, Eric was supposed to meet Joseph Mesa for a math tutoring session at 8 p.m., but he never showed up, which was completely out of character for him. So Joseph did what any friend would do. He alerted the dorm RA that Eric had missed their study session um, and that unfortunately he'd also smelled a foul odor emitting from Eric's dorm when he rang the light-up doorbell attached to all the students' rooms. (laughs) Yeah, the RA found Eric's door locked, um, but he also knew that Eric had cerebral palsy and there was a possible chance that he might have fallen or gotten ill without, you know, any way to let someone know. So the RA responsibly, I think, used a master key to enter the room. Yep. And he found Eric prostrate on the floor, blood splattered on the wall, and Eric's face severely bruised and bloody as if he'd been bludgeoned with something. Eric was unresponsive and the RA immediately contacted authorities that one of their students had very clearly been murdered. The Washington, D.C. police immediately arrived to assess the situation. 
Cogswell Hall was evacuated and turned into a crime scene as investigators tried to determine what had happened here. Megan, what kind of weapon was used for this attack? Initially, or I would say a cursory investigation revealed that Eric had been pretty brutally beaten with a chair and that his neck had been broken. Um, His autopsy actually revealed, Amy, that he'd been strangled to such a degree that, yes, it had broken his neck. And so the death was ruled a strangulation and the bludgeoning. um, So when you asked about what kind of weapon, the chair had most likely taken place post-mortem. Also, this gives us a little information that the perpetrator didn't necessarily come to the scene with the intention of hurting him. Possibly not, because it doesn't look like the perpetrator brought a weapon. Good call. So based on the personal nature of the attack, um, and aside from the blood spatter, the room looked very intact and didn't really show signs of a struggle. So the police were, I guess, kind of quick to surmise that this had to be someone Eric knew. Um, especially since he'd installed mirrors on either side of his computer so he could see anyone coming in the door from behind him. That's smart. Very smart. It it seemed, yeah, it seemed like there would be a small chance that an unknown assailant could kind of sneak up on him, although it was definitely possible. Only a few days after the investigation commenced, the school held a vigil for Eric with his friends, Joseph Mesa and Thomas Minch, standing to give a speech on Eric's courage and tenacity on never letting his cerebral palsy or deafness stop him from achieving his dreams. It was a real nice tribute to him. In general, the student body was incredibly frightened by Eric's death, since the evidence also pointed to someone, to a killer possibly being someone at the school. Um, In later interviews, Thomas recalled the students being very suspicious of each other, you know, kind of looking at one another and thinking, was it you? Did you kill him? Um... A lot of students felt like they were sitting ducks. I'm assuming this is a pretty obvious question, Megan, but was there surveillance cameras? I don't think there was. Uh, Well, there might have been surveillance cameras, but it did not capture um, anyone from the outside. And remember, this is a dorm that has many residents. So it's captured people who are on the campus and supposed to be on the campus, if anything. Gotcha. The classes were suspended for a week following Eric's death to allow students and faculty to seek counseling and process their grief. Also, the students from Cogswell Hall had to be relocated for several days during the investigation, leaving them without access to their clothes, money, books, or any other belongings in their dorms. Gallaudet's provost remembers those students as as really being homeless for that week, which must have been also an um, additionally awful for them. And during this week, rumors flew about what had happened to Eric and why. Some felt that Eric's murder was an LGBTQ hate crime as Eric was openly gay and the secretary of the Lambda Society on campus, which was a student organization that promoted gay rights. So that naturally naturally became a rumor. Was there any other reason to think this was a hate crime other than that? No, there wasn't any other reason. I think it's just the rumor mill going because, you know, what are some of the reasons why someone would not like Eric, a a very likable guy? Mm -hmm. Investigators also had a difficult time gathering leads because, Amy, remember, the students from Eric's dorm would not have been able to hear anything that happened. So there was a particular challenge investigating in a deaf community. And during their many interviews with students about Eric's life, they had to use sign language interpreters. 
And on this interviewing level, anytime an interpreter is used, detectives have a much harder time reading body language, inflection, word choice. You know, these are a lot of the tools that detectives use during an interview, rightfully or wrongfully so, Mm -hmm. right? I think we know some things about interview tactics and some of the measures that police consider indicative of guilt or whatnot. Uh, Would you say that that's true? Uh, Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's a bad thing that they're not being able to rely on those things. Yeah, I guess because there are some that believe they're scientific, but they're not quite scientific. Some of the social or verbal and nonverbal cues that people give that police read as guilt or not guilt. I think it's like a 50-50 research shows, right? It it really is. It it shows that it's actually 50-50, that we're no better at predicting innocence, guilt, or dangerousness than kind of a flip of the coin. crazy. However, detectives did get an anonymous tip that Eric had a bad argument with his friend Thomas Minch a week before he turned up murdered. Remember, Thomas is one of the guys who was speaking at his service. Yep. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com podcast. So Thomas Minch quickly found himself in the interrogation room at police headquarters. With an ASL interpreter, investigators grilled Thomas on his relationship to Eric and the details of their argument. I I think it's easy for them to just find out where he was at that time, and then they could easily cross him off the list if he has an alibi, no? They could, but he also lived in that dorm, so it's possible that he's just around. And I can tell you that Thomas did admit that he and Eric had a fight because Eric, according to Thomas, Eric was hitting on him and Thomas was not interested. He said that he just wanted to be friends. He also admitted that he had hit Eric at one point during their disagreement. But as you pointed out, Amy, he'd been he had an alibi. He'd been at theater rehearsal every evening after class. So He did have alibi witnesses. For that particular night as well. Yes. And uh, while his alibi checked out, detectives believe based on the time of Eric's death that Thomas could have left rehearsal and killed Eric, that even though he had this alibi, it was still possible. Okay, so he's on the suspect list. He's high on the suspect list. Unbeknownst to Thomas as well, investigators also had strands of brown hair they'd found on Eric's body. Thomas had brown hair and police had sent them out for DNA analysis, but they had not yet gotten a report back. Hearing that Thomas had hit Eric during their argument felt like the clinching detail, though. So investigators ran with this, citing that Thomas had essentially confessed and he was charged with Eric's murder. Pretty quickly, this is before the DNA came back. And they're talking about because he said they had an argument and he hit him. I mean, for me, this is way too soon to be charging a murder. I think so also. I think they're I think they're probably under a lot of pressure from the university. Sure. Since they're so well regarded that they need to just get this case closed. Yeah, I think so as well. When his charges were made public, Gallaudet expelled Thomas from the school as the administration truly believed that Eric's killer had been found. 
classes resumed and students were allowed to move back into Cogswell Hall. However, two days later, the judge at Thomas's arraignment threw out the charges on the grounds that he did not see sufficient evidence to charge the young man with murder. Great. I think that's the right move. And that's the way it should work, right? Yep. Prosecutors also agree there really was no confession in this interview. Thomas's admission to hitting Eric did not mean he murdered him, and this was not tantamount to a confession. So Thomas was released and his parents, who'd flown out from New Hampshire to support him, emptied his dorm and took him back home. But detectives seemed undeterred by this and continued to try to mount a case against Thomas, subpoenaing him for a grand jury hearing for February 2001. This is so problematic because I would bet they believe they have the person and they're probably not investigating other possible leads. That's correct. And I will tell you, Amy, um, to their credit, fellow students were in an uproar about Thomas's expulsion, citing that his rights had been violated and the school had no right to expel someone who hadn't even been officially charged. I agree. And uh, But Thomas had also been receiving death threats from students who believed he was Eric's killer. And the provost did not renege on the expulsion. Thomas returned to Washington, D.C. on February 2nd, 2001 for his grand jury hearing. But after his testimony, he was dismissed as a witness and, and told that he could return back home to New Hampshire. Okay, so that's it for Thomas right now. But around 4.15 a.m. on February 3rd, 2001, only 20 hours after Thomas's grand jury hearing, a fire alarm went off in Cogswell Hall and one of the students did not evacuate. When the RA went to the dorm of Benjamin Varner to find out why he hadn't left, the the RA found a room sprayed with blood, furniture knocked over, and clear signs of a struggle. Benjamin was on the floor covered in blood and deceased. Similar scene to the first murder. Yes, and Benjamin was one of the friends in that group. I was going to ask you what the relationship between victims, and also tell me how much time passes in between the two murders. So between the two murders, it was September to February, so about five months. Um, One of the key facts that was pointed out here, though, is that this happened just after Thomas's grand jury testimony. Mm -hmm. Just keep that in mind. I think there was shock uh, among the community. Washington, D.C. police came immediately to process the scene and take Benjamin's body in for an autopsy. They also employed the FBI forensics team for this case. As forensic investigators took in the scene, it was, as you pointed out, Amy, eerily similar to Eric Plunkett's. Only this time, instead of strangulation, a knife had been used. Oh, that's totally, that's a totally different situation. Now, was this knife... Were they able to tell was the knife brought to the scene or was it already on the scene? I think it was brought to the scene, which does, as you point out, change things, right? Someone who's come prepared versus someone who has not. Yep. From initial observations, it was clear that Benjamin's throat had been slit. The autopsy also revealed that he'd been stabbed in the neck and chest over 15 times. He had a collapsed lung and a knife had penetrated deep into his skull. Wow, this sounds very personal and likely premeditated. Also sounds very brutal. The skull is a very um, unique spot to stab someone. Megan, were these two, um, did this victim also have an affiliation with the LGBTQ community? I don't think so. Okay. 
Detectives also noticed a trail of blood leading out of the room away from Benjamin's body, making investigators believe that he had um, or making investigators believe that the suspect had been injured in the fight. Now, there were also fingerprints and a bloody shoe print of a men's Nike cross trainer that did not fit any of Benjamin's shoes. And a search of the garbage cans outside the dorm revealed a bloodied ski jacket and a bloody paring knife. Well, that sounds like a lot of evidence. Does, doesn't it? Um, in addition, investigators found that Benjamin's wallet and checkbook were missing. So remember, this is 2001 before credit card chip systems. Just keep that in mind. So detectives took blood samples and the shoe print to see if they could find any matches that would lead to a suspect, as well as they monitored Benjamin's bank accounts to see if there was any activity. And this was a big deal, Amy, because in Eric Plunkett's case, investigators had made one fatal error. They did not notice that Eric's wallet was missing from the scene, and they were only alerted to this fact when Eric's mother called them, saying she just received a bill from Eric's ATM card with charges dating after Eric's murder. Interesting. Okay. So this is showing different motive, possibly, too? Also, um, this seems a huge oversight. Oh, a huge oversight because... I mean, robbery is usually one of the motives in a crime like this. Well, not only that, they also could have been tracking the credit cards. And I'm sure the cre- that wasn't the first time the card was used. Yeah, this, this was a problem. And uh, unfortunately, though, Amy, this was a whole month after Eric's death. So there was no surveillance videos of the ATM still available because they tape over them. Um, But this time, detectives knew what to look for, and they were confident that Thomas Minch would be the one to show up on the footage. I bet you he doesn't. Uh, Well, Thomas was supposed to have gone back to New Hampshire on February 2nd, remember, after his grand jury testimony. But when investigators checked with the airlines, they found that Thomas's flight had been canceled and he was still in D.C. until late at night on February 3rd. So was this... Was this a coincidence that another student from the same dorm who'd been in the same friend group had been killed when Thomas Minch came back to D.C.? Well, the university administration was absolutely shocked and dismayed at Benjamin's murder. They'd expelled the supposed murderer and their campus was so secure that they wondered how this could have happened. After Eric's death, the provost ordered 12 new security cameras to be installed in the dorm hallways to keep something like this from happening again. So your question earlier about surveillance, I imagine they had them outside, but not in the hallways. But when she talked to campus safety, she found out that the security cameras hadn't been installed yet. So there was no way to see who'd gone into Benjamin's room. Hogswell Hall was evacuated for a second time that school year, and the students were afraid. Many withdrew, not wanting to risk being the next victim of a violent murderer. I have to tell you, if it was my parents, they would have definitely pulled me from the school as well. Yeah. Now, Thomas Minch once again became the number one suspect, and police were sent to New Hampshire to question him again. But this time, Thomas had a solid alibi. He had receipts and ticket stubs from his extra day in D.C. showing the time-stamped entries to museums he visited, the restaurants he'd eaten at before getting back on the plane. And security footage from those locations proved that Thomas had not been anywhere near Gallaudet University on February 2nd to the 3rd. 
Well, this was your suspicion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. There was no physical way for Thomas Minch to have committed the murder that day. Even if the first murder was in question, this one was not. So with that in mind, who killed Benjamin? Well, detectives got a huge break in the case only a few days later. From monitoring his accounts, they saw that a transaction had been made and immediately went to the bank to get surveillance footage, as well as the check that had been cashed in Benjamin's name. To their great surprise, but maybe not yours, it was not Thomas Minch on the CCTV footage, but the boy's good friend, Joseph Mesa. Oh, wow. Yes. So it I mean, was, it was I, I was sure it was somebody in the crew. I just wasn't sure who. Yes. In addition, the, after police posted a photo of the bloody ski jacket and asked for the public's help in identifying its owner, a student called the tip line to say that the jacket belonged to Joseph Mesa. So investigators were very keen to talk to him, and they had enough evidence to get a search warrant on his dorm room. So investigators tossed the room while Joseph was in class, and in it, surprise, surprise, they found a pair of bloody Nike sneakers a t-shirt from Benjamin's room and Benjamin's credit cards. When Joseph found out the cops were searching his room, he went to his RA to say he had something to tell him. He told the RA that he had killed Benjamin Varner and he was turning himself in. Oh, wow. Did he confess to the other one also? You'll have to wait and see. Okay. In a two-hour interview with, with an ASL interpreter, Joseph slowly revealed to detectives how he had killed Benjamin. He explained that he'd gone into Ben's room and saw the paring knife under Ben's microwave. So the knife, in fact, was there, not brought to the scene. It had been given to him, uh, that knife had been given to him by his mother to cut up fruit in his dorm room. And Joseph said that he decided to stab Ben in the neck. When he did, he told investigators, quote, He looked right at me and I felt guilty. I knew he was going to report me right away and I thought I'm going to have to kill him. Report him for what though? He said he stabbed him in the neck. No, but he didn't say why he stabbed. Like, was he trying to rob him or anything? Not at that point. He had not said. It doesn't make any sense. Well, it might in a little bit, but hold that thought. So Joseph just continued stabbing him, stabbing him until he knew that Ben was dead. He then left the knife in Ben's skull and stole one of Ben's shirts to cover his own bloody clothes. But that's not the worst of it, because remember, when Benjamin was discovered, there was no knife in his head. Joseph detailed, listen to this, Amy, that he actually went back to Benjamin's dorm several times over the course of the next 48 hours to stare at the body and admire it. At one point, he'd taken the knife out of Benjamin's head, wrapped it in his jacket, and thrown it out. And on his third visit to the body, he stole Benjamin's checkbook and wallet. So that was an afterthought, the robbery. That's correct. And listen to this. That T-shirt that he kept, he'd hung it in his closet as a memento to the murder. Was he in love with him? No, but now we have two murders. Now think about this. You asked the motive. We've got two murders, right? It doesn't seem that robbery was the motive, although he does seem to have used this. It seems that he perpetrated violence 
fantasized about violence, went back to the body several times, admired his work, took trophies. I mean, this is what a serial sound killer. Like? Exactly. Right? This serial killer like in the making. And he definitely would have struck again. That is what I would say you can, you, I mean, we can't, you know, certainly yeah. our predictions are 50-50, but you can surmise based on what I know, especially from teaching uh, serial killing for so so long and studying it, this is very um, er, in, early indicators of serial and offending. There was no um, sexual assault to either victim? There was not. At the end of this two-hour interview with detectives, the lead detective asked Joseph if there was anything else he needed to get off his conscience. And almost as an afterthought, he replied, quote, also Eric Plunkett. I did that one too. I knew he was kind of weak. I didn't think he could be that strong. And I put my arm around his neck, kept holding it there continuously. Whoa. So we're talking about... The only motive here is someone who's a sociopath or psychopath and wants to see other people suffer. It seems so. Um, He said that when Eric stopped breathing, Joseph picked up the heavy desk chair and beat Eric around the head with it to make sure he was dead. Remember, those uh, injuries happened Mm post-mortem. Now, Joseph admitted that he'd actually planned Eric's murder over the course of several days, even going into his dorm the night before the attack to assess the space. And to make detectives even more horrified, Joseph confessed to actively framing Thomas Minch for Eric's murder. Joseph said he'd been the person who called in the anonymous tip about the fight between Thomas and Eric And Joseph knew when Thomas was coming back to D.C. for his grand jury hearing. So that was the timing, the coincidental timing of the second murder. Now, see, I'm wondering if he's going to get charged for that or there's too many other looming charges to even worry about that. No, he he was definitely going to. Well, he's going to be charged with both murders, but. No, I mean, for for trying to frame someone. Oh, I see. Sorry. Um. I'm sure they would charge him at some point, but I'm sure the primary charges were the murders. When asked what his motive was, Joseph simply replied that he needed money. I do not believe that's the real motive here. No, because that was an afterthought, taking the wallet. I think it was an afterthought. And I think there are there are a number of serial offenders who will steal. They will rob their victims, absolutely. But that's certainly not the primary motive. When he talked about, you know, seeing someone who was weak, I knew he wouldn't fight. He wanted to hurt someone. He wanted to kill someone. He wanted to watch someone die. I need to know this kid's background. You you will hear some of it. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. Let's get into the um, legal proceedings and you'll hear a little bit about him. On February 14th, 2001, Joseph Mesa was arrested for the murders of Eric Plunkett and Benjamin Varner. Detectives called Thomas Minch in New Hampshire to let him know that he was exonerated on all counts. And not only had Joseph Mesa confessed to the crimes, but the DNA results from the brown hairs found on Eric's body had come back and they were a match to Joseph Mesa and not Thomas. Amy, I can only imagine what Thomas was feeling after that interview. Um, To be so heavily investigated for a crime he had nothing to do with, um, to find out as well, though, after that, that one of your good friends had committed the crime and tried to set you up to take the fall. And also, he's probably could have easily been a victim, too. You know, he could have been like, why not? 
why not him versus the other kids, right? He was part of that group of friends. He was probably so scared also once he found out what was going on. So he has to live with all these things. A friend tried to frame him. He's got probably survivor's guilt. He's been accused of a crime. I mean, this is really a lot to handle. Um, He was asked how he felt about being falsely accused. And he said, quote, I lost who I was. I got really low and it got really bad. I really gave up hope. I was done. I mean, I don't think this is uncommon to hear from people who have been falsely accused or wrongfully convicted. This probably is a shared sentiment. I just think it's funny. Like, what did they expect him to say by asking that question? <laughs> right? No, I, I know. I, I can't imagine. I don't know if they were waiting for some moment where he said, well, you know, I felt really lucky to be exonerated or, you know, maybe they're waiting for some press worthy moments and not the realities of how bad. Um, how awful what he had to go through really was. Um, so what about Joseph? Uh, did he go to trial? Well, he did opt to go to trial. And his defense strategy was mental illness and insanity. Okay, well, let's hear the evidence to back that up. Yeah, he told his defense attorney that he was not fit to stand trial. He explained that prior to murdering Eric He'd been having hallucinations of the WWE wrestler, The Undertaker, wearing black gloves and signing to him that he needed to commit violence. And while he tried to resist them as long as he could, he finally broke down and killed his friends. I see you shaking your head. Joseph was sent to a facility to be mentally evaluated for competency. And interestingly, even though he told his defense attorneys about these hallucinations, He'd never mentioned them in his confessions to the police or to any psychiatrist who treated him over a five-month period in the mental facility. Yeah, I had a feeling that they weren't going to find much. The defense had their own doctor, and their doctor found evidence of Joseph's violent nature, as in, in one of their therapy sessions, Joseph reenacted animal abuse he'd performed on kittens when he was a child back in Guam. Um, Amy, this is not a good sign if it is true. It does not indicate, you know, insanity under the legal definition, but it is indicative of or it is one of the flags of serial killing behavior. Yeah, but is there any any other evidence or testimony to back that up? Like his parents or anyone else in his life say that he suffered any of these or, you know, that he exhibited any of these odd behaviors? No. There was not any proof. And from what I understand, he didn't have a background of a criminal history. Um, by the way, he also wrote a detailed letter during his time in jail while awaiting trial saying that he was making up a fake insanity defense to get off. Um, I think it's so interesting. I took a course in this uh, when I was getting my PhD. I don't know if you did, but in psychology and we, we went over malingering and how difficult it is to fake insanity. You have to be able to keep this up 24 hours a day. It is not just as easy as walking into a room for an hour and, you know, shaking your head or saying you hear voices or acting like you're not, um, you know, completely with it. It's very, very difficult to consistently keep this un under observation um, for a long period of time. And not only that, Megan, a lot of people, when they malinger, they malinger the wrong symptoms. Like, for That's example, when people have schizophrenia. They always they act like they are only hearing voices, but or there's other type of hallucinations that they don't realize. They'll be like, oh, I'm seeing things and I'm hearing voices. And, you know, they go too far. That's correct. A very good point as well. 
as we know as well, Amy, all mail sent from jail is read. So the letter was intercepted and the prosecution was able to use this letter at trial and show that he was indeed competent and understood what he had done. Who was the letter um, to? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if it was okay. a friend or family. On the stand, Joseph's doctor explained that between the previous animal, animal abuse, Joseph's returning to the scene of the crime multiple times to look at his handiwork and the keeping of mementos from the killing were all signs of a serial killer. On the stand, the same doctor also deemed that Joseph was mentally competent and understood right from wrong and was able to control his behaviors. Joseph displayed all the characteristics of a psychopathic serial killer and was only one murder away from reaching the FBI's official definition of a serial killer. Um, really, Amy, as you had point out, he was a serial killer in the making who was caught at the beginning of his career. And I think there's very little doubt that if he had not been stopped, he would have killed again. Only three hours after deliberation, the jury found Joseph Mesa guilty on two murders in the first degree, robbery, burglary, possession of a weapon, and check forgery. The judge sentenced him to serve six life sentences plus another 90 years in prison. Okay, so he's not going anywhere. No, he's not going anywhere, and he is not eligible for parole. He's serving his life sentences out in Sheridan FCI in Oregon. Sounds great. As for the families of Eric Plunkett and Benjamin Varner, Joseph Mesa's going to jail changed nothing. Their loved ones still had been brutally taken from them, senselessly, and their son's dreams of achievement would never be realized. And realize these were kids who worked so hard to get where they were. Eric's mom in particular took it very hard, as when she arrived on campus after Eric's murder, Joseph had hugged her and given his condolences to her, saying how much he'd missed his friend. All the, all the while, when he was Eric's murderer. To have hugged Joseph and listened to his, you know, believable condolences was very difficult in the wake of knowing what he had done. This had a real impact on his mother. That also gives that that also lends more evidence to the kind of personality disorder he likely has. Abs psychopathy. Uh, absolute extreme. And while Thomas Minch did get his life back after his exoneration, it would never be the same. He'd been in prison while awaiting his arraignment. His name dragged through the media in several public forums as his arrest drew national attention. And then he was expelled from the most prestigious deaf school in the country at 18 years old. He sued the Washington, D.C. Police Department for $2 million in May of 2001, but he didn't win. I was somewhat surprised to hear that. I guess they had good reason because of Joseph's setup to believe that he was a viable suspect. And or maybe they had good lawyers. Or they had good lawyers. <laughs> yeah. And while Gallaudet did invite Thomas to come back to school, he declined, instead going on to the Rochester Institute of Technology. That's another great school. Yes. Post his traumatic experiences, Thomas has dedicated his career to advocacy and equal rights for the deaf, hard of hearing, and deaf and blind. Today, Thomas works for Disability Rights Maine as an advocate and deaf services specialist. He is also co-president for the Maine Association of the Deaf and a board member of the New England Home for the Deaf Hard of Hearing, which is a deaf nursing home. 
Um, Gallaudet set up memorial scholarships for Eric Plunkett and Benjamin Varner. If anyone would like to donate to their scholarships, we have a link in the show notes. There have been no more murders at Gallaudet, but I think it's safe to say that Joseph Mesa destroyed many lives. From killing two of his friends to framing a friend and causing the ripples of grief and devastation to the families and all the students who attended Gallaudet in 2000 and 2001, I think it's safe to say that even though justice was served, everyone's lives were changed. The only silver lining here is that Joseph Mesa was apprehended before he could kill anyone else, and likely a serial killer in the making was stopped. Before we go today, if you'd like to support Campus Killings, consider subscribing to the show with an Abjack Insider subscription through Apple Podcasts. Your subscription will get you VIP access to all the shows on the network that not only includes hundreds of episodes of ad-free listening, but also bonus content and early access to episodes. For only $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year, You'll unlock a variety of listener benefits, and you'll be supporting this show in the process. Head over to Apple Podcasts and search for either Campus Killings or Abjack, and you can start your subscription with a free trial. Your support is greatly appreciated. Thank you, everyone, for listening today, and we hope you'll join us on the next episode of Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg, with research and writing by Abigail Belcastro. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Campus Killings. You can also visit the show's homepage at campuskillings.com. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 